This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. Yeah, so let me talk a little bit about preparation. So we've got our notice. You serve your notice. As you know, you as with any kind of deposition notice, you have to give a reasonable amount of time for them to prepare, in particular with respect to a 30B6, because they it really puts a lot of work on the other side to get this witness prepared. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit when Chris addresses what you do when you receive a notice. You're likely to have had a back and forth with the other side. I, I, I don't think I've had a time when you don't have some degree of back and forth. And there's an, uh, there is a burden in the rules that you are to work with the other side uh, on a 30B6 notice topic on you know areas of dispute or contention, whether they're overbroad, too burdensome and the like. And there's a practice for what happens afterwards. But let's assume you've gone through that process, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and you have your topics now. How do you, what do you do to prepare for a 30B6 deposition? Um, and I think in some respects, the 30B6 preparation is key, but it's also, it has a nice crutch because you've spent a lot of time effectively preparing your outline, which is your topics. So I think the key is identifying in your outline, the topics. And I think the key points in your deposition outline are going to be, because you're going to depose someone that you don't always know who they are. Like I've had instances where I've walked in the day of, and there they are. I've had the other side tell me who they're going to be ahead of time. You don't always know this. So you somewhat prepare, get the person's background. In your outline, you want to know what they've done to prepare, what personal knowledge they may have had with respect to it, and, and what you want to do. With respect to documents, um, this is a general deposition pointer, right? You want to make sure that you've had a good survey of documents, uh, understanding what you really want to get out of the deposition. The rules allow you to ask the corporate deponent to show up with documents. Now, I've actually never used that tool. I've always done separate discovery document requests because I want the full scope of documents in my possession that I've reviewed and understand what's out there. And then I prepare my topics and notices. So I, you, you want to, as you prepare for that deposition, get that sense of the documents, get your big bundle of documents, whittle it down to what you're realistically gonna use um, because realistically, as we all know from depositions, 25, 40 documents. I mean, it depends how fast you're blown through documents, but there are only so many documents you can show up witness in a seven-hour time period, um, no matter how fast you go. If it's authentication, you can do more, but you know you have to kind of really know what you want to get to. So I think in terms of developing your outline for a, a corporate witness, use your topics as your guide. Um, Make sure you understand that when you prepare your outline that you're going to elicit testimony from the person or persons about what they did to prepare. 
and we'll talk about that a little bit more when you're actually we, we're going to address taking the deposition because that that has a whole host of what do you do when they respond a certain way um but i think like any deposition corporate deposition is it's really won or lost in the preparation having a good knowledge of the facts having a good knowledge of what you want to ask having a game plan you know when i start every deposition i, I start when i do my outline a blank sheet of paper i usually have I put bullet points at the top, four or five, and they are, what do I want to get out of this deposition? What is my goal? If I achieve these four things, I've succeeded in my deposition, or I've done what I think I should do. Again, things change. Maybe what you thought would cut it doesn't. But at that point in time, this is what I think I need. Use that. Create your outline for your documents. Use your topics as your guideline, because that is going to be, that's your deposition. You can't really go outside the the scope of, of your topics. And then um, obviously get yourself a court reporter, you know, decide whether it's going to be zoom. You got to negotiate with their side about when, where they're going to appear, where it's going to be in person or zoom. Um, but again, zoom depositions is, is a whole other topic, um, how to negotiate that. So I've taken you from notice decision prep on the taking side. So I think Chris is now going to talk about what do you, what are you doing on the other side? Which is you're the entity that got the notice. What do you do when that thing, that email comes through and says they want to take your 30B6 of your client? I'll tell you, but I'm going to hold you in suspense because I just want to make a, make a comment. Um, and that's that, you know, as Jim and I are talking about preparation for an examination or preparation for a defense or actually examining or actually defending, you know, obviously we're talking about some specific issues regarding 30B6 depositions, but some of this is also just good practice for any kind of deposition. So, you know, the, the I was thinking about this, Jim, with regard to the the question of the outline. Um, uh, you know, I think, I think, as you say, creating an outline is really important. And it's really important to know what documents you're gonna use, um, what's, what, what call out in the document do you wanna make sure you've directed the, the, um, uh, the witness to, you know, th- that kind of thing. But um, I, I will tell you, it's been a long time since I have followed my outlines. Um, and, and I, and, and the thing that I, that I make sure that I do is I have the, what are the things that I need to get out of the depot? Um, because that is my guiding star Uh, otherwise what I'm doing really is listening to the witness. And, and that I think is the most important from my perspective, the most important skill of taking a deposition is listening to the witness, um, to follow, to follow the witness where the witness is going consistent with what you know about the case, what you know about the documents, uh, and what you need to get out of the deposition. I mean, that that's exactly right. I think whenever I'm defending a deposition, whether it be corporate or witness or anyone, one of the my greatest joys um, is when I, you know, you can't help but notice sometimes you see the other side, you can tell he or she has questions and they ask and they check. And yeah. they check off. And I'm like, oh, this is great because I know <laughs> limited. I know them, you know, it's just check, check, check. They go down and you're done and you're out. So um, to your Chris's point, yes, um, it's a general practice point of all depositions is to be know what you want to get, be prepared and be flexible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Flexibility is very important. Um, requires a real mastery of the documents. All right. So um, uh, preparing to defend. So uh, let me talk first about um, the the 30B6 specific issues that you need to be thinking about when you get the notice or you get the subpoena. So the first is that um, you have to, you really have to review the topics. So the thing that the real benefit 
of a 30B6 deposition when you are on the receiving end or the examining end is that you know what questions are going to be asked broadly, right? You don't know the exact questions, but you know what's going to be covered in the deposition, which is not a luxury that individual fact witnesses get. With individual fact witnesses, um, a lot of it is preparing, it is trying to eliminate the element of surprise when you're defending it because you don't know. Um, you don't get a list of topics. It's only in the 30B6 um, the, the 30B6 context that you get a list of questions. And expert depositions, you know, it's all going to be what's already, you're going to be deposed on the on the scope of the report. Um, but with 30B6, you get a list of topics. Um, but as Jim went over, um, it's possible you got you get a list of 15 topics that are far too broad um, that are not going to allow you to effectively prepare the witness, the, the, the entity, um, from being able to provide uh, testimony. It's going to be overly burdensome, burdensome or simply not enough of a guide uh, to, to allow for effective uh, preparation. Um, and, and in that case, you have to think about what your response is going to be. Um, response uh, cannot be simply to uh, object and rest on the objection. So when you get an interrogatory, um, typically what you'll do is you'll review the interrogatory You'll object to the scope of the interrogatory. Perhaps you'll provide a narrowing of that scope where you won't respond at all and simply rest on the objection. You'll provide the response and maybe you'll fight about it or maybe you won't. Same with the document, uh, request for documents. You, you might get one that's overly broad. There's something that's acceptable. You'll provide your objection. You'll narrow the scope and you'll provide your documents consistent with your objections. You can't do that in the 30B6 context. You can certainly provide written objections and you should if there's something to object to. Uh, and then the, the point there isn't to then rest on the objection, provide a witness um, who will then only speak to or only provide testimony to what the scope of what you um, have agreed to, to testify to. That is a load of trouble. Um, if you do that, you could find yourself uh, on the receiving end of having to produce a witness again um, or other kinds of sanctions. And there's, there's, a, number, there's a bunch of case law about this, um, that if you don't produce a witness who is knowledgeable um, uh, and can speak with, uh, in good faith um, with knowledge uh, after diligence and reasonable inquiry, um, then it's tantamount to simply not showing up to the deposition. So if after providing objections to the scope of the topics for whatever reason, um, you can't then come to some agreement, as Jim's alluded to, with um, the, the noticing side, the next step is a protective order. You need to file something in court um, that explains to the court um, why either you can't produce a witness at all or why the particular scope of the deposition uh, or of the specific topics, certain specific topics of the 30B6 um, are, uh, are too broad or overly burdensome, um, are completely irrelevant, um, not calculated, whatever it used to be, not calculated to lead to the discovery of invisible evidence, um, uh, which is still the standard that I have in my mind. Um, th those are those are the kinds of things that you ultimately are going to have to fight about in court if you can't get the noticing side um, to to agree. So that's that's rule number one is essentially read the read the topics, see if there's anything to object to. Once you have figured out um, what the scope of the topics are that you can that you can agree with uh, with the opposing counsel, or you or you won. Can I ask you a quick question, Bruce? Please. Um, in your practice, have you ever uh, found yourself in a protective, uh, a motion protective order practice in the 30B6 context? 
Yes, um, I have um, on the um, uh, on the yes on the side of having to 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 move for protective order, um, <laughs> although uh, it never got litigated. Um, the we we essentially couldn't agree. We filed for a protective order. Um, uh, this was in Eastern District of Virginia, so it's the rocket docket. Uh, and there, at least the way it worked when I was practicing there, um, you file your motions on a Friday and you have your hearing the following Thursday. So it, it happens very, very quickly. Um, by, by the time Wednesday rolled around, we had resolved it. Um, and I think, I think they realized they were going to lose. What about you, Jim? Um, yes, one instance of it, but I guess the question before I answer that is, was it scope? Was it relevance? What was the what was the nature of the fight? Um, so now you're testing my memory. Okay. Um, I think, if I recall correctly, it was um, it was burden. Mm -hmm. uh, as I recall, there were an inordinate number of topics that would have required an inordinate number of witnesses, some of which just overlapped with personal knowledge of of specific defendants or specific witnesses where they had already taken depositions. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was it was a lot of duplicativeness. Okay. Um, that that seemed to be getting a second bite of the apple, if I remember correctly. So I have had one instance, and it kind of alludes to a question we got, which we can address partly here and maybe more later on, which was we were suing an entity that after the lawsuit happened, it was acquired, and effectively everybody was uh, gone from it. It was it was kind of the assets were rolled up into a bigger corporation, so that there was literally nobody around. And this was the one I think I alluded to earlier, where we want to take the deposition earlier. And so, as you know, if you issue a notice, um, you're kind of allowed to just kind of set a reasonable date for the yeah. notice. So we we they were like, no, 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 we're doing it last. And their position was they wanted to go last because they wanted to hear from these former employees and former directors who we were likely to depose um, and that they could then use that deposition to fill in its their 30B6. They didn't have anybody to do 30B6, we fought that we served them the notice, which required them to move for a protective order, which they did, and ultimately prevailed. They prevailed and got the deposition right at the end um, after the other witnesses occurred. Part of it was strategic, as we talked about, because we wanted more than the 10, and the judge said, take 10 and then come see me. So they they put their 30B6, and I give you a wild guess what day they picked as the availability of their 30B6 witness. And if you say anything other than the last day of discovery, <laughs> the last day of discovery that their 30B6 was suddenly prepared and yeah. ready to go. So this was an, a situation where the corporate entity had kind of lost its folks. You know, we have a question from the audience where you have an entity that they only lost them. They're gone forever. So you don't really have the chance to form it. Um, that is a slightly different issue than what I was dealing with. In my case, the 30B6 witness stepped in he carried, he was in-house counsel at the new entity and he basically carried in with him a table and he just pointed to deposition testimony and said, on this topic, we adopt this deposition from this person and, and vice versa down. And they even handed over to me the table that he was using um, to make crystal clear. In this instance, you know, we'll get to this a little bit, but it's a unique set of circumstances of the audience member. The question is, what do you do about an old dispute, an entity that's long gone, they were acquired, by another large entity, no documents, no people, no nothing. You, you don't have anything about it. I think what you're dealing with is the rules, as Chris mentioned earlier, the rule requires you to provide a witness about what is known or reasonably known. And if the company's really been gone for 50 years, 
you know, you're in a situation where you're asked to put up a corporate witness, there is really nobody with knowledge. So the answer is, we don't have someone with knowledge or ability to answer these topics um, because we can't meet the reasonable known. The downside then is, now that's your answer for trial. So I hope the heck that you don't need that company to answer anything affirmatively at trial, or you need them to win on your case, either defense or plaintiff side, whatever side you're on, because you're really going to be stuck with, I don't know. So that's right. Like, like any other individual, you get an, I don't know. Sometimes it's good because then they're stuck with the, I don't know. So think to yourself is, can we live with an, I don't know. Then, then you've kind of met your burden. You've met your, your, your requirements under the rules. If it truly is, no people, no documents, no nothing. It's a, it's essentially truly a ghost company. Yeah. There's not much else you can do about it. As far as I know, Chris, you have any other thoughts? No, I mean, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think depending on, depending on who the party is, who wants that, who, who wants that answer. And it might be both, right? You can imagine a situation where both parties benefit in some way, but depending on who it is, what, what I think, if I were the party that wanted the, the um, acknowledgement, right, on the record that there's nobody who knows uh, anything, I think what I would insist on, and I think I would get, is a very short deposition from a corporate designee, because the question, the question is, involves a large corporation where liability and assets were acquired by another large corporation, right? So I think I'd have essentially the acquirer, somebody who represents the acquirer, um, I'd want them on the record saying that they that they performed a diligent search, yeah. um, that they looked for documents, um, and here are the facts: there were no such documents. There was nobody. There was nobody who could educate them, um, and whatever facts there are unknown to the acquiring company. I think it, I'd want that on the record. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. You have a deposition where that's what you would do. You'd show yeah. the effort you undertook, and that you had no other answer to it. So. Um, if 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 you're a defendant and the plaintiffs have the burden of proof, you know yeah. they're kind of out of luck a little bit. They need another yeah. they need another source for that evidence. Right. Now, if you need that, then you're out of luck. So it really, but the rules don't. I, as far as I understand, I've never experienced the rules can't make you find stuff that you don't have. Right. right. So like anything in discovery, you don't have to make new discovery, new evidence. Right. Right. So if you don't know it, and after diligent search, it doesn't exist. And this happens, right? You have product liability cases that go long, that, that can reach back into the past. You know, you have a lot of cases where surprisingly events are quite old um, and, and that's the way you deal with them. Um, yeah. Nothing else you can do. And you have to, as a litigator, learn to navigate around those either holes in your case yeah. or shortcomings in the evidence that you need. Yeah, you, you just said something, let me riff on it before we get back to, to the, the topic of defending. Uh, these depositions, um, and that's that. No, no discovery rule requires you um, to create information that doesn't exist, or factual information that doesn't exist. Um, uh, there are some exceptions, not not to the rule, but to what you want to do as a party. I, I mean, Jim, I'm sure this is the case for you that the rule of thumb is, you know, you tell a witness, don't bring any notes, don't bring, don't bring a book, don't bring your, leave your phone in the car, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because you don't want them to inadvertently introduce something that then needs to be produced, uh, especially if it wasn't already produced. You don't want to create work product for the purposes of responding to uh, a question about facts. Having said that, um, there are instances where that rule of thumb uh, uh, runs up against good judgment in a particular case. So 
um, getting back to the patent trial I mentioned, uh, the patent case I mentioned before, uh, there was a, a 30B6 uh, notice with topics that involved a host of different pharmaceuticals that have been developed by the organization um, over a period of, I want to say decades, um, as well as related patents and inventor and, and inventors and, and the rest. Absolutely not in the knowledge of any one person, really in the, uh, the personal knowledge of multiple people and documents. And uh, there was no way to effectively have a witness um, at the deposition who could simply regurgitate information. Um, and there was no document that provided that information uh, in the case. And it was completely legitimate to ask for the, these questions. So what happened? We created a chart, a color-coded chart with all this information, prepared the witness on the chart, um, and then had the witness come to the deposition prepared with the chart and multiple copies so that if the witness was asked a series of questions requiring the use of the chart, we'd break out the chart, provide it to the uh, the parties, um, and then you know here's a new document produced that's essentially work product, but as an aid for the witness um, in order to be able to testify. I will tell you that because of that decision, it took a month to prepare this witness because we had to make sure that we had all the information absolutely correct um, and not run into problems. So there are there are times when in order to have somebody effectively um, be prepared and present and, and, and examined as a 30B6 witness where you, know, you have to break those rules of thumb. Oh, I, I, I agree with that, Chris, actually. I think in the 30B6 context, I think this is what you're, the topic you're into right now, which is preparing to defend one is is the rare instance where you tell a witness to show up with documents, it's at a 30B6. Yeah. Like I said, this one I recently took, the other side showed up with a sheet. And yeah. and you know, it was Zoom, he had it, they didn't give it to me ahead of time, but I said, hey, can I have that? Yeah. Emailed right away to me. So it because you need to have them prepared on a host of issues that they might not have personal knowledge, work product, summary evidence, whatever you want to call it, is a help, is a very useful tool to employ when defending a 30B6 deposition. It really helps you control the witness and as Chris yes. laid on and lets them to be knowledgeable, responsive, and keeps lets you as a lawyer know you have a certain degree of control. They have a crutch. You know, these folks, as you guys know from taking depositions and defending depositions, they sometimes people need crutches, safe harbors. It really Absolutely. gives them one. I, I think that's a great point. I'm gonna, I'm gonna return to that. And by the way, um, we must be having a great discussion because I see a ton of questions now. Um, and I'm going to, and Jim, you can, I'm going to let you manage the questions while I, while I uh, breeze through these defense. Uh... They're good because they're going to come up. They're going to come up. We're going to hit them shortly on topic. So yeah. we're going to yeah. we see your questions and we're going to get to them. Perfect. Um, so I've talked a little bit about don't rest on objections that you send to opposing counsel. Um, if you have to, if you, if you truly object and you can't come to agreement, make sure that you file a protective order. But then the next question is, um, who do you designate? Now, there's case law that suggests that that courts view the, the appropriate designees as those with the most knowledge. And in a lot of ways, that's intuitive. Well, you know, if we're talking, again, we'll, we'll talk about the patent context. Um, you know, if we're talking about, if it's a dispute about the patent, um, then you're going to, you're going to want, and there are topics that are, that are being designated for 30B6 deposition, where um, it's about the process of uh, creating and filing for the patent and then using the patent for the development of, of some pharmaceutical, then it makes sense that you're going to want to talk to the inventor. 
um, and because that person is going to be um, uh, most knowledgeable. What if that person is a terrible witness? Um, what if that person um, just just through can, cannot be controlled to Jim, to Jim's point? Um, volunteers all sorts of irrelevant and potentially harmful information um, that isn't uh, that that isn't really pertinent to answering the thirty B six topics and can't help uh, herself in doing so. Um, that is the last person you're going to want to have uh, uh, designated for your thirty B six. The beauty of a thirty B six, of course, is that you can really designate anybody as long as they are educated and prepared. Um, and so one of the things that I've done uh, in the past um, is, and this is very common practice, is that you know, you'll have the knowledgeable person who you, for whatever reason, might not want to have actually be deposed um, in the room during the preparation. So they're going to prepare the, um, whoever you ultimately designate as the witness, um, uh, they're going to help prepare because they're the person with the most knowledge. And maybe they're available during the deposition. You know, Maybe something comes up where it's fair game, um, the person who's who's being deposed can't remember, um, or, uh, or or simply was something that was overlooked in the preparation. Hopefully not, but that does happen. Um, the answer then is not I don't know. Uh, you never want to say I don't know in a in a, uh, in a, in a thirty b six deposition. Um, the, the answer uh, is sometimes um, can we take a break. Uh, the answer is sometimes, can we take a break? And then you find out the answer so that you can um, actually uh, provide it. And so having somebody knowledgeable on call um, is often very important. Um, but that's those are the kinds of considerations that come into the 30B6. You know, it may be your most knowledgeable person really is the best person, but they're totally unavailable. Um, so you need to find somebody who actually is available. Maybe um, uh, and maybe the the people maybe it's not one person but multiple people who need then need to fill in the shoes. That's a lot of work that you need to do with the client, right? This is all work that you need to do with the client, um, and it's work that you do with in-house counsel. Uh, it's work that you do with other folks who are important, um, knowledgeable about the facts relating to the case, um, to try to figure out. You know what is this? What are the stable of witnesses here uh, that we want to be thinking about for one or more thirty b six topics? Um, so that's a really important part uh, of the thirty b six preparation. Um, once you get to that point, once you've figured out who your witnesses are, then I think it's a much more straightforward question, right? Then it's a question of you know making sure that that person or those people are educated on the topic and by educated that means they need to know um, they need to know what the documents are they need to know what the answers are to important questions um, and they're going to sometimes need to do research sometimes you're going to have to in the like i said in the preparation you might have to have multiple people in the room or available by phone uh, in order to prepare them i have found that um, that often these kinds of uh, corporate depositions um, for highly complex cases are the Take the longest to prepare people because you know that you really have to know something where somebody isn't in the weeds, um, and they and they really have to learn uh, learn learn the case. Jim, I don't know if you've had. This experience. I, I agree, and I think one of the reasons why it's it's not only the amount of knowledge that you have to kind of impart upon someone who may or may not have personal knowledge, and, and is alluding to one of the questions we got in the audience is that the answers have a big impact because they are binding, and I use that word bindings, that's easy if we understand it, on the company. And, and while, you know, 
you know, the, the VP of HR can give an answer and he or she might, you know, their testimony might be kind of clouded in a recollection. It's been a while. You always have this kind of wiggle room when you go to trial to say, oh, hey, I've, you know, I looked at more documents, whatever. You can always kind of rehabilitate a personal witness a little bit easier at trial. A corporate testimony you know, you're talking about some really central credibility issues if you're trying to resurrect to give a, you know, a more clarity of answer. You can't really hide in the, uh, you know, it's been a while. I don't remember. I, I was at, a, at my kid's baseball game all day yesterday, so I didn't really prepare that much. Lack of preparation, lack of memory are not defenses in, for a 30B6 witness. So you really do have to ensure that so that when you're preparing them, you as a trial litigator, you got to be thinking about depending which side of the V you're on, what do I need for my case? You know, there's always this classic saying, I always tell witnesses, listen, your job is not to win the case. Your job is really not to lose the case. <laughs> Try not to put the pressure on them, but that's kind of what witnesses have. The 30B6 witness is a particularly sensitive one on that front. Um, you want to make sure that that witness is prepared to give the company's position in the litigation and avoid giving away any type of possible defenses or issues. So it is a very sensitive one for preparation. So I agree with Chris's sentiment. Preparation is the key um, to, to that for the, for the witness. And I noticed one question here about um, uh, essentially the nub of the question is, you know, how do you deal with um a, a witness that refuses to answer or where counsel instructs them not to answer based on uh, the fact that some information is sensitive business information. Yeah. Um, so this makes me laugh because it's something I come across a lot uh, where um, where I'll, try, I'll get opposing counsel uh, that tries to get away with saying, I can't keep the information because it's confidential. And that's what protective orders are for. Um, they're to allow uh, discovery to happen um, while protecting uh, legitimately confidential information um, from falling into the wrong hands. Now, before a case begins, you know, normally if you've got competent counsel on both sides thinking carefully about this, you'll have a protective order where you might have two tiers of confidential information. And one of them might be attorney's eyes only for truly sensitive business information where we don't we only want the attorneys to see it. And we because the opposing party is a competitor, um, we don't want them to see it. And then you handle depositions accordingly and you make sure that the deposition transcript is designated so that it's got the tiers of confidentiality and you don't have the parties in the room when certain topics are being discussed. And all of that should happen ahead of time. Um, it cannot be a basis. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll say, I won't say never because maybe, maybe there are instances in which there's a, you know, and there's an exception, but 99 times out of 100, um, you cannot uh, refuse to answer a question based on questions of confidentiality, um, at least not in the in the civil litigation context. Um, you can instruct on the basis of privilege. Uh, if something is attorney-client privilege, um, then that is absolutely a, a legitimate basis, basis to instruct not to answer. Um, you might be able to instruct not to answer because questions are clearly uh, harassment. Um, and there are some interesting uh, uh, case studies. I'm sure Jim, Jim and I uh, both come across where, you know, is this so off topic that it's not a legitimate uh, question to ask in, a, in this 30B6 deposition? Uh, and so we're not going to allow it um, uh, to, to be asked. You know, those are sort of, those are tougher judgment calls. But confidentiality is not one of them. Um, 
Yeah, go ahead. In, in jumping on this question, you know, it's it's jumping a little bit ahead, but I'd like to address it too, which is if you're taking a, taking a 30B6 deposition and you, you should never get an instruction not to answer, um, except for privilege, right? So you'd always kind of take issue with it. And the question then becomes is, let's say yeah, it happened, right? It's always then becomes a fight of, it's a little bit of um, judgment time. You know, have you ever stopped the deposition and called a court? I've done it once in my career, worked out fine, but it's a, it's, that is a big ask. They do not do lightly. And that case was one where I was actually asserting privilege over documents and the lawyer continued to use documents over which I had asserted a privilege. And I said, those are privileged, stop using them. And, and he kept using them. And so eventually I said, listen, I've got to just stop this thing. Let's go to the courthouse, which was across the street. Let's go there. Now we went over for the two o'clock session and, you know, and the, the co-counsel says to me, you know, Oh, I, I doubt you're going to get sanctioned, Jim, for this. I said, I'm not going to get sanctioned. <laughs> I'm not going to get sanctioned. But that is, so I think the question the audience member has, what do you do in this circumstance? I wouldn't stop the deposition like that, but I would ask the witness, could you answer this question? Are you prepared to answer this question? Not, you know, so you get, so you, what you want to do is establish that it's within the topic that you've asked, right? It's a, it's a notice that they never sought a protective order on and it's within topic. Ask them if they're prepared to answer the questions. Can they answer this question? Not give me the answer. The question is a little different. Can you answer this question, but for your lawyer's instruction? Try to get as much of the record that shows that they knew that that's within scope, they knew the answer, and they're giving a, a kind of meritless confidentiality instruction that doesn't really stand. You might press a little bit, and if they kind of hold their, their ground on it, you basically then have to turn around and make a motion probably to compel slash sanctions potentially for an improper objection instruction at a deposition move to reopen expenses for the court reporter things of that nature like i said i wouldn't stop it i would but i would make sure you make your record make your record topic on topic and something that he should be prepared to testify about but it's being told not to because it's sensitive or confidential um it's a risky move by the by the by counsel that that, that stops it because what they're risking they're the, the sanction that the that I would be most concerned about is another bite at the apple. I, we get we get the witness again, um, you know, two weeks from now. Yeah. Which you probably there's a good chance you will if it's a legitimate baseless deposition. And I will even add, and this, we're gonna I'm gonna hit this later after Chris talks about the prep. During the deposition, if you ask a question and the other side says objection outside the scope of the notice. The witness still has to answer the question. If it's outside the topic notice, you'd say it's outside the topic. You know, Chris will, I, I would typically say objection outside the notice. You can ask him, but this is personal knowledge only. So you put on the record there that this is not a corporate testimony, not binding as the term I've used, um, but they still have to answer. So even in that context, the, the, the defending counsel can't stop a deposition or instruct the witness not to answer. So when you're defending a deposition, 30 v 6 deposition, you know, the, the the rule is, is that save a privilege objection, you really can't stop it. Now, if it becomes harassing, you start asking, you know, him or her about his personal life, family life, heck, I'll stop, I'll, I'll stop that. And I'll say, listen, this has got to stop. We're taking a break and we're cutting it off. Those are things born out of judgment where you feel like you're truly, clients truly being harassed. You know, you give them a little bit and then you kind of shut it down. But short of that type of scenario, just your run of the mill, Hey, this is outside of scope. Not answering. That's not a valid objection. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm noticing we've got a little over half an hour left. So I want to make sure we hit the hit the rest of what we need to yeah. do. 
I think I've talked uh, about as much as we need to about defense um, of a deposition. Um, the, the, the one the thing I'll, I'll end here with before I turn it over to Jim to talk about uh, the examination um, is that the, the most important thing to remember is that the, everything is the same, except that you're not preparing the witness to say that I don't know or I don't remember is a legitimate answer. Um, if they don't know the answer in the course of the prep, they need to find out the answer and you need to find out a way to give them the answer. Um, other rules apply, right? Don't volunteer information unnecessarily, answer the question that you're being asked, uh, and, and you should make sure to drill those kinds of rules into the head of the witness um, so that they're still being careful and listening to the question that's being asked and being careful in their responses. Um, but really, it's that education part that is that is absolutely key in defense. But Jim, talk to you.